Welcome to episode 16 of the Seeking the Military Suicide Solution podcast brought to you by the Military Times. I'm Dwayne France. And I'm Doc Shauna Springer. And we'd like to thank you for taking the time to learn more about suicide in the military-affiliated population. Think you know somebody who might want to listen to the show, share this episode, tag them on social media, or send them an email. You can see all of the shows by going to federalmentalhealth.com forward slash STMSS. I'd like to share our resource for the week, the RAND Corporation. The RAND Corporation is a research organization that develops solutions to public policy challenges. Their research has examined the physical and mental health, interpersonal relationships, and employment problems of service members, veterans, and their families, and has recommended policies to support veterans' reintegration into civilian life. Find these reports, studies, and recommendations at RAND.org. Thanks again to everybody for joining us to listen to an honest conversation about service member veteran and military family suicide. We'd also like you to join our Facebook group moderated by fellow combat veteran D. James. You can find the group by going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash group. We want to continue to bring our listeners insights from the people who are doing the work in studying suicide prevention in the military affiliated population. And one of the first people that comes to mind, if not the first, is our guest today. Shauna, what can you tell us about Terry? So Terry Tenelian is a senior behavioral scientist who's currently serving as a fellow with the House Veterans Affairs Committee, where her expertise has been tapped to develop a comprehensive strategy for preventing suicide in the veteran population. Terry has been doing mental health services research for 25 years. She began to focus more specifically on the military community after studying the impact of deployment on those who serve in the military. She's the co-author of a landmark study entitled Invisible Wounds of War. This study has had a profound influence on policy and has generated a wealth of additional research inquiries. While Terry has done high caliber research on a range of topics, she does also have a personal connection to suicide prevention research. Her father, who's a military veteran, died by suicide 20 years ago. Yet despite her personal connection, which drives her passion for the work, She's committed to maintaining an objective approach to her research. Let's listen to more about what Terry has to say on this episode of Seeking the Military Suicide Solution. Yes, she is definitely an expert in this field and extremely accessible, is willing to talk to people. Let's get into the conversation and we'll come back afterwards to pull out some of the key points. You and your colleagues at RAND and, and now in your position as a fellowship with the House Committee on Veterans Affairs, you've been looking at suicide in the military-affiliated population for well over a decade. What do you see that is effective when it comes to stopping suicide in the military population? As we know, suicide in the military population and the veteran population is a complex challenge because we have to recognize that there is no single cause and therefore there'll be no single solution. And I think one of the things that's been glaring at me over the past couple of years is that we really haven't been as holistic and as comprehensive in our solution set as we need to be. Needing to recognize how various different factors are interconnected and how we need to think about not just this as an individual psychopathology challenge, but also as a social justice issue in coming up with approaches and solutions that 
include policy, include interventions, include new ways of thinking about identifying people at risk and getting them into the right types of services and making sure that we're being comprehensive. And so one of the big gaps that I've been concerned about is that lack of a comprehensive approach or framework. Back in 2008, 9, 10 timeframe, you know, my colleagues and I at RAND had done some work looking at the Department of Defense's suicide prevention programs. And one of the things that we observed was that lack of a comprehensive approach and making sure that all of the pieces were operating in concert, if you will, to really lead to those reduced numbers of completed suicides. You know, so thinking back on active duty where, you know, suicide prevention was in the hands of maybe the post or camp suicide prevention coordinator and behavioral health professionals, but it's not something that was managed by first line leadership. And the parallel in the veteran space is it's not all a behavioral health industry solution and it's not all a community solution. It needs to be a combination of both. That's absolutely right. I mean, and I think understanding how those are connected and are interdependent is really important. And so making sure that in a framework for response, we are thinking about all of those together and not necessarily putting weight on one side of the equation over the other, because I don't think that's going to get us to the end result. I know you had Matt Miller on, you've had some other great guests, and I know Matt talked about his equation, um, which I think is a helpful kind of euphemism for thinking about this. You know, we've been working towards adopting this comprehensive framework based upon the CDC's technical package and seven strategies. I know that Cicely talked a little bit about that when she was on the show as well. And to me, that kind of really does speak to the public health approach that looks at addressing issues for the whole population, but then also thinking about how you intervene for specific individuals that may be at risk. We certainly know we have evidence at different levels across that comprehensive framework. We have a lot of evidence to indicate that some programs and interventions are already effective and have shown that they hold a lot of promise for reducing suicide risk. And we need to commit to testing and other solutions. And as we find that those solutions are also effective, then working to get them adopted more in a widespread way. And I think this is one thing, and of course, again, as as Shauna and I are are working through this project, one of the reasons why we did is because we know that there is a lot of the research that you and your colleagues have done and a lot of the things that the CDC and the VA's national strategy, prevent veteran suicide, you know, we have these tools, but somehow it's hard to get them into the hands of the people that need to use them, maybe at the local VFW or on Team Rubicon, or even from neighborhood to neighborhood, veteran to veteran. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons that the governor's challenge is going to be a really critical tool that we have in trying to disseminate some of these best practices out into local communities so that they can understand how to tailor them to the unique needs of the population in their areas and thinking about ways in which they can leverage different communities, the workforce in different ways, and also, you know, really think about how their population might need different approaches versus kind of a one-size-fits-all approach. And again, as you'd mentioned, I think this is an emerging theme through some of these conversations of 
you know, there's a base of things that will work, but then how you apply those tools in different areas will make a difference and, and will be different just depending on the culture of the community and even what veterans in that area are interested in. Something that a lot of people ask is, you know, what are the signs? In the army, we used to say, oh, if somebody has given away all of their possessions and they were really, really sad, now they're really, really happy. And people really look for these very clear signs of this person is about to do it. And so it sort of gives me a signal to step in, but it's not as simple as that. But really where I'm coming to understand it's really understanding what the social determinants of health are and, and what are some of the deficits in these areas that a service member or veteran or family member are experiencing. Would that be accurate? I think so. I mean, you have to look at this along a continuum, right? And that if we're going to really address some of the risk and protective factors, we do want to get left of the crisis situation and move towards being able to improve people's health and well-being across a whole set of domains. And when I said in the beginning, you know, we have to think about this not just as a challenge of individual psychopathology, but also a challenge around social justice, it kind of then helps us think about how certain groups of individuals have maybe historically experienced vulnerabilities by nature of the social policies and the environment in which they live. And so, you know, populations that have been found to be at high risk, you know, are kind of groups that maybe have been marginalized over time, that have had less access to resources historically, and that contributes to the vulnerability. So that's one of the reasons that I do think we need to think about social policy interventions, while we're also thinking about how we look for, you know, indicators of risk along that continuum for points of intervention. You know, and speaking about the military population or, or the military-affiliated population specifically, this idea of being marginalized, some of us do it to ourselves, right? That, that we get out and, and we still want to be, you know, I, I talk about you leave the military and then you sit at the gate and you stare at the gate and you wish that you were still back there, that, that sometimes this marginalization or the separation that that this can be done to ourselves by ourselves. Maybe so. I mean, you, you know, I think that you're talking about, you know, the the interplay between marginalization from a societal perspective in terms of access to uh, resources and some cultural issues, but also perhaps the isolation and right. kind of the challenges that many will face during transition in losing that connectedness that they had to their units and to some of their peers. And so, you know, again, as we think about these seven different strategies in the CDC framework, you know, I really like the idea of promoting connectedness because I think for the military population in particular, that's a challenge as they go through transition. How do we promote connectedness for that population as they disperse, maybe move to new areas in new communities, take on new roles and responsibilities in the civilian sector, and making sure that they feel connected and have purpose and a sense of mission again, because I think that's a key challenge for some in that transition period. I absolutely agree. And you've mentioned it a couple of times, the risk and the protective factors. And I don't think that we have gone into this on the show yet so far, but really identifying, you know, well, what does that mean? And, and this is really the public health approach is to, well, we're identifying the problem, um, mm -hmm. but also identifying these risk and protective factors. So touching on protective factors, you mentioned uh, connectedness. Here in Colorado, we're also looking at 
economic stability and in, in mm-hmm. a number of things that that looks like. And then also providing education and awareness around suicide and suicide prevention, gatekeeper training, things like that. So I'd like to hear your thoughts on more of the protective factors that may be beneficial to keep someone from getting into a suicidal crisis. Sure. Well, I think you already hit on a few of them in terms of trying to really ensure kind of stability economically, whether that's housing stability, financial security, food security, and and things that really just take some of those worries away because they can all cause distress. And so anything that is strengthening those economic supports, but also, you know, how are we teaching coping and problem solving skills? And so a protective factor is often, you know, individuals who have positive coping techniques or who are able to kind of deal with challenges or crises and kind of get through them with better decision-making and problem-solving skills. We also know those interventions that aim to improve relationships, whether it be family relationships or parenting relationships, things that are focused on, you know, improving social and emotional learning, those can also, you know, create some more protection. At the same time, we need to think about the environments in which people uh, live and whether or not those environments are protective. Here we think about a lot of the ways in which we can make the environment safer to reduce access to lethal means for people that may be at risk. But I would also say we need to think about the culture. The culture of harassment in the military is something that I've talked about before in in my uh, congressional testimony, for example, you know, and thinking about really moving towards a zero tolerance policy around the culture of harassment and assaults. We know for many women, veterans who die by suicide, the history of military sexual assaults and sexual trauma is quite prevalent. And so we really need to think about that culture as well and trying to help make the environment more protective. Right. And and figuring out how to do that. And it's not just one organization that's going to to do all of those things and implement those protective factors and ensure uh, connectedness can be done however the veteran wants to do it, whether it's the VFW and the Legion or Team Rubicon or RWB or a non-military organization like the Elks Club or the Lions Club or something like that. But that's not, those aren't necessarily going to be the same organizations that are doing economic stability or addressing a culture of domestic violence or assault or things like that. That goes into a community-based comprehensive approach where an agency of agencies almost, or or a, a, a collaboration of agencies are each addressing a different aspect of the problem in order to address the overall problem. Yeah. I mean, it kind of goes from how do you set policies that promote standards and expectations in different environments, even in the workforce, for example, you know, how do we think about stress in the workforce and maintaining policies and programs that are going to promote healthy behaviors and well-being, as well as what's available outside of the workplace for people to get engaged in their community, to connect with their peers or colleagues? And how do we ensure that within the healthcare environment, our providers are appropriately trained to screen and identify individuals that may be at risk and then deliver what we know to be um, the highest quality care for people at suicide risk? All those things need to work together in concert. And it's that interplay, as I was mentioning at the beginning, that really will contribute to the reduction in suicide. Right. And then that sort of 
blurs the line between the protective factors and the risk factors because again you've mentioned a couple of the ones that we're focusing on here in Colorado one of them being suicide safer care for me specifically culturally competent care as you just referred to is ensuring that providers in my community are familiar with and capable to provide you know evidence-based treatments for veterans but also lethal means safety you mentioned that as far as right. addressing the environment and then just postvention. So these three yes. things are risk factors that if someone is in, in a suicidal crisis, that we can intervene and provide the appropriate care so that it doesn't become an event where someone dies by suicide. Absolutely. And as we've been working with this comprehensive framework on the, the seven strategies promoted by the CDC, all of those are included. And thinking about how together, you know, through different approaches, whether they be community-based or clinically based, the goal is ultimately to reduce and end suicide. Right. And so in my experience, a lot of people are doing the protective factors, the connectedness and providing economic support through employment or housing uh, or even education for future benefit. But there's not a lot of people really focusing on those last two that I mentioned, lethal means safety, not just mm -hmm. firearms, but also prescription drugs. And as you mentioned, mm -hmm. suicide hotspots and then postvention. We, of course, we had Kim Ruwako on the show and, and TAPS mm -hmm. does great. But from my observation, there's not as much focus on those two risk factors as some of the others. I would agree that we need much more concentrated effort to address kind of access to lethal means, firearms, medications, and others as well. And so, you know, one way that I've been thinking about this is what are the standards and expectations and requirements for how providers need to be trained in lethal means counseling and crisis response planning, safety planning, not just within the behavioral health setting, but also other providers and other healthcare professionals that may, you know, come in contact. And then, you know, how does that then impact the non-healthcare community as well? And so how can we all be thinking about lethal means safety and safety planning, not just in the emergency room, not just in the clinic, but in other ways as well? Similarly, you know, within health systems, within other community-based uh, organizations, the, the challenge of postvention, safe messaging and reporting, and how you support those that have been impacted by suicide death is critical, not just for understanding and being compassionate with survivors and protecting and respecting those that have died by suicide, but also, you know, the concept of doing root cause analyses within a healthcare system is critical for understanding what went wrong and how do we improve so that this doesn't happen again. And so as we've been thinking about potential policies, particularly for the Department of Veterans Affairs, I know that they've got activities in both of these areas, but how can we enhance those so that we are seeing meaningful differences in how they're reducing the rate of suicide for their clinical population as well. And um, thinking about how doing root cause analyses can identify challenges that can be remedied in a continuous quality improvement manner in a postvention framework to then enhance prevention and interventions on the other part of the equation as well. You know, in, in hearing that, and, and again, it, sometimes since I'm in the middle of it and doing the work, as you'd mentioned with the governor's challenge and, and what we're doing here in Colorado and how I'm connected to that, 
and I hadn't realized in the show so far, we really hadn't talked about really specifically this idea of protective and risk factors and, and, and gotten to this level. And so I'm definitely going to make sure for the listeners that both the VA's national strategy to prevent veteran suicide and the CDC's technical package is in the show notes. And, and definitely one of the action steps would be for someone who is interested in implementing that in their community would look at those. But what would you suggest for individuals that, that want to do something, right? You know, beyond the hashtags, beyond let's raise awareness, I, I think we're aware that there's a problem. What action steps can individuals take or even organizations at the community level take to address this? So I think awareness is important, but to me, it's necessary, but not sufficient. I think that everybody should learn and practice good self-care skills for themselves and then also how they can help, you know, their loved ones, their neighbors, and, you know, making sure that they're being more aware of individuals in times of stress. I've talked about the importance of reducing stress, trying to promote connectedness, and really being there for other individuals, but being there for yourself is also really critically important. I think if individuals do experience distress, they should feel safe and confident in reaching out for help and ensuring that our system of providers is equipped and capable and has competency to provide the right care, the high quality care, I think is something that I've been very focused on in my research. But at the individual level, I, I really do think that people, it's not just an awareness issue, it's knowing how to respond and how to take care of yourself and how to take care of others and making sure that we're helping individuals to get the care that they may need. You know, I think this is something that maybe in one of the earlier episodes, or, or actually, I think this is something that Shauna and I had had discussed is, is in my viewpoint, the only veteran that I can absolutely guarantee will see the sunrise tomorrow is me. I have a responsibility right. to care for myself, which then is, is, is I am well and, and stable, let's say, then that gives me the the greater ability to help others, right? You know, working with the military so long, we have this idea of my shield covers my brother and sister and, and their shield covers me. But if I'm not uh, well enough to carry that shield for my brother and sister, then they're going to be exposed. Right. You know, at the individual level, I do think that we all have a responsibility to also understand why and how these social policy interventions will be really critically important. And so whether it's discussions and topics around raising the minimum wage and expanding opportunities for social programs to help those that are vulnerable, whether it's about how you contribute to the culture of support rather than a culture of harassment, as well as thinking about how you can advocate for enhancements to our system of mental health delivery and behavioral health more broadly so that we can ensure that those who have needs have access to services, but also how we think about safety and access to lethal means as a population. And that's a population made up of individuals who care for themselves, but care for others as well. And understanding that those are all important steps that we can take to reduce risk for those that may be more vulnerable. Yes. And I, I think, and again, this shows uh, the complicated nature of 
you know, the individual, the community, the policy stuff, the, the national level, and you're right there in it and you've been in it for a while. And I really appreciate you continuing to be there and all the work that you're doing. I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Well, thanks for having me. This is a personal passion of mine, and I am really blessed to be able to focus on this right now in my fellowship time. We talk about the people that we planned on bringing on the show as we were developing this concept, and Terry was always one who we wanted to come on the show simply because she's been doing this for so long. Yeah, for sure. One of the points that was a theme in this interview was around the importance of connectedness. Terry brought this up a few times. And as you know, Dwayne, I totally agree with Terry. And we agree that this is critical. I want to share the basis I have for us to have hope and an insight that many of my patients have used to navigate the darkest nights of their soul. From working with our nation's warfighters during times of suicidal crisis, it's clear to me that we have a weapon that is more powerful than despair. One night at 3 a.m., I was looking at the ceiling, mentally reviewing some of my most challenging cases, and I had an epiphany that hit me so hard that I had to get out of bed and write it down. In the middle of that sleepless night, I had a key insight that has changed everything about how I understand the work of suicide prevention among veterans. What veterans would die to protect is also what they would live to protect. It is these people and these values that help clear the fog of mental warfare. When we connect, we survive. This is the single most important thing I've learned from helping warfighters during times of personal crisis. My suicide prevention approaches, which I've developed in partnership and through deep collaboration with the warfighters I serve, are all based on this core insight. In my next book, Warrior, How to Support Those Who Protect Us, I'll be describing exactly how we can apply these insights to the work of suicide prevention. As Terry and others have said, awareness is not enough. We need to take action to prevent suicide. That's absolutely correct. And I agree, as as we've often discussed, is connectedness is significantly important. Again, we think of Joyner's interpersonal theory of suicide, the sense of burdensomeness. In my experience, as long as a veteran does not have that sense of deep isolation, then they'll be able to, even if they feel like they do have to rely on others, or even if they do have that acquired lethal means, the other two parts of Joyner's theory, as long as they're not isolated and they're connected to others, then typically they can weather the storms. Yes, absolutely. You know, and speaking of taking action, another theme during the interview was the link Terry makes between firearms and suicide risk. She stressed the need for providers to be well-equipped and correctly trained to provide care. And putting these two things together as a frontline provider, I've always felt that the conversation around firearms and suicide needs a fresh set of insights and a totally different, more culturally respectful approach. Right now, most clinicians ask about lethal means as part of standardized risk assessments. They often ask the questions point blank, early in the treatment relationship before any trust has been built. And as I've said before, a perceived threat that someone can take away a firearm can be a serious barrier to treatment. Sometimes just asking about firearms can lead a veteran to drop out of treatment entirely. I wonder then, despite our good intentions, is asking questions about firearm ownership in the way that we are currently doing it 
actually increasing risk of suicide. Specifically, what if the questions we're asking about firearm ownership are actually backfiring and leading veterans to avoid seeking help in the first place? What if our questions and our approach are the major barrier to veterans who would otherwise benefit from care? This is a topic I've thought a lot about. And I've developed suicide prevention approaches through deep collaboration with veterans who are firearms experts with lived experience of navigating the deepest valleys of mental warfare. Last week on our Facebook Live host chat, a participant texted a question about when my next book is coming out. By the time this episode airs, it will be available on Amazon. The name is Warrior, How to Support Those Who Protect Us. The firearms conversation is a loaded one but I'm going to take it on in this book. I hope that people will check it out. I wrote this for the healers who support veterans and their families, for the caregivers who support warriors at home, for those who help advance policy at the national level, and of course for the warriors themselves, to allow them the benefit of collective insights gained from those I've partnered with in their healing journey for more than a decade of frontline work. Well, I think that this is definitely a... Well, to be honest, a politically charged topic, of course, you know, this is something that anytime the word guns comes out, it becomes political for many people. It's an emotionally charged topic. And it's also one that we can't shy away from. As I referenced in the interview with Terry, postvention and lethal mean safety are two areas of that public health approach that we're not really talking about. And we've talked about it on the show before. Many of our early guests have discussed the fact that we need to address this. It's not about taking guns away from people. It's not about gun control. It's not about keeping these weapons out of the hands of crazy combat veterans. It's like you said, it's collaborating with the veteran to say, how can they keep themselves safe through their own personal choice? So giving them the agency to do so rather than removing something against their will. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's an emotionally charged symbolically loaded conversation with very, very high stakes. And we can make the argument that firearms are the main go-to method for those who die by suicide in the military. I am compelled by the research, a research that Terry's done, to say that we need to have this conversation. It needs to be a priority. We absolutely have a role as frontline providers and healers and supporters to not shy away from the conversation. But the way that we have it is actually, I think, accomplishing the opposite effect of what we want. And even though it's not, you know, about really taking firearms away, that is how I think veterans are hearing it based on our current approach. Yes, I think, again, definitely needing to have these conversations is important. Being able to get the information to the hands of those who need it, our listeners, and again, sharing this information to get it into the hands of the people that are actually going to use it. I agree. It's critically important. We can't just talk about theory all day. We have to talk about how to practically apply that. So I really appreciate everybody for joining us. Make sure to check out the show notes at federalmentalhealth.com forward slash STMSS 16. We can get links to the things we talked about on this episode, as well as on militarytimes.com. As a reminder, you can ask us questions or let us know what you thought about the show by going to our Facebook group moderated by the outstanding D. James, by going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash group. While you're at it, check out our resource for the week, the RAND Corporation. The RAND Corporation is a research organization that helps develop solutions to public policy challenges. You can find everything that they're doing at rand.org. 
You can also find more about the work that Shauna is doing by checking out her latest book, Warrior, How to Support Those Who Protect Us, and the work that I'm doing with my latest book, Military in the Rearview Mirror. Both are available on Amazon and can be found at veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books. Just a reminder that the guests and reflections on this show are for informational purposes only and should not be considered professional advice. While Dwayne and I are mental health professionals, we are not your mental health professionals. We always recommend that you discuss these things with a licensed clinician. And always remember, you can connect with the Veteran Crisis Line by calling 1-800-273-8255 and pressing 1. Chat online with them at veterancrisisline.net or texting 838-255. Thanks again for joining us to talk about seeking the military suicide solution. And make sure to follow Military Times on social media to keep up with the latest shows. Join us next time for another great episode. And until then, remember, you're not alone, ever.